You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. My name's Christina and on today's episode we're going to be discussing the assessment and management of lower urinary tract symptoms in males and to help in that discussion I am once again joined by urologist Dr Matthew Roberts. Now we did have you on our podcast recently to discuss recurrent UTIs so I do encourage any of our listeners who didn't um, tap into that episode to go back and have a listen. It's a really good practical approach to recurrent UTIs. But today we are focusing on male urinary tract symptoms and you have an interest in this area with um, expertise in prostate disease and malignancy as a urologist here in Brisbane, working both publicly and privately. So really appreciate your time again on the Good GP podcast. Pleasure, Christina. So let's jump in and talk about, I guess, firstly, let's talk about symptoms related to prostate um, and what sort of symptoms should we be assessing for in males and do you have any tips when it comes to asking about lower urinary tract symptoms in terms of making that nice and streamlined or even kind of screening tools that you could recommend? Well I'm tempted to say you tell me what they tell you uh, because what they tell us most commonly is getting up at night, affecting their sleep and making them cranky, so nocturia. And the other thing is a poor flow, either compared to other blokes in the urinals at the footy or making a mess in the toilet, much to the uh, despair of the rest of the household. They're the main two. But what I would say is if you can try and just think of it holistically from either a storage perspective, and so that is uh, frequency, nocturia, urgency, and whether there's any urge incontinence, or if there's a voiding aspect. And so that's hesitancy, calibre of the flow, incomplete emptying, postmetrician dribble, and the need to do double voiding. Uh, because I say usually the storage aspect relates to a bladder or a tank problem, and the voiding symptoms relate to a plumbing problem. You know, the first question I ask every bloke is, what is it that bothers you the most? Because that's what we should focus on first. Uh, and if you want a bit more structure towards that, um, then the IPSS or AUA symptom index uh, screening tool is quite good. And then also at the end of it, there is a quality of life sort of measure because it might be that they describe all these terrible symptoms, but they're not actually that bothered by them. I love that way of just breaking it up into those two headings and um, helps me to kind of go back to first principles and think of it in that way. And I really like that IPSS assessment tool. It's just like such a quick tool. Is it eight questions or something? It's not very long and one page and can kind of helps me as a female GP, I guess, with a little bit less exposure to prostate's related symptoms um, to kind of make sure I'm covering the basics. My experience with male patients is that you need to draw stuff out of them, that they, they rarely sort of volunteer a lot of information. Um, and so those, those tools and that structure help you draw out important information. Absolutely. And I, and I guess a reminder to take the moment when we can with some of our male patients, because I think often they'll come in with other issues um, and it can just be one probing question that gets them to then open up about it, an issue that might be giving them a lot of grief or, you know, impacting on their quality of life, but they don't want to mention it themselves. So sometimes opening up the discussion can be helpful, even if it's not what they've come in for. They tend to be the population that don't like to come to the GP much. So when we've got them in the room, make the most of it. 
but but also sorry to keep interrupting but uh you know nocturia is a is a poor prognostic factor you know in the geriatric or elderly population you know uh nocturia we think causes more falls which we know um, affect their survival so while for many patients it is a lifestyle factor for some it can actually affect their lifespan yeah absolutely All right then, so is there anything else we should be checking for on history, I guess, especially when it comes to possible causes? So not just thinking about sort of the storage voiding type symptoms, but actually thinking about other things that we should be checking then more holistically in that consult. Yeah, I think that's a a very good consideration because while the symptoms are uh, indicative of the problem, they don't necessarily indicate the cause. And so I what I would say is that if it's a predominantly storage nature, uh, think about predominant bladder problems. So there might be an idiopathic overactive bladder, but there may also be potentially a neurogenic component. So for instance, if they've had new paresthesia, recent spinal surgery or, or other things like that, um, that's a, a different kettle of fish for to, to manage. Um, but also if there is a persistent storage symptoms, Maybe with some microhematuria in a patient that smokes, that can be an indication of carcinoma in situ or early bladder cancer as well. So thinking about those aspects, if it's a a predominant voiding one, then uh, the most common is uh, benign prostatic enlargement uh, causing bladder outlet obstruction. But other causes can be a urethral stricture, maybe from no cause at all or a sexually transmitted infection or trauma or others. And then quite commonly, we see severe phimosis causing those as well. So just a quick examination can often find important things and whether that's due to BXO. uh, And occasionally, I had a patient recently, it was due to penile cancer. So that's predominantly, though, in older, uncircumcised patients, but still a worthy consideration. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a nice little segue, I guess, to my next question, which is what is the appropriate examination? And I guess leading on from that, investigations, would you be suggesting for a male experiencing lower urinary tract symptoms? Yeah, I would say a basic abdominal examination is a good screening tool. If you can percuss a bladder, that's a problem. Uh, Obviously, making sure there's no palpable renal lesions. And then the the genital exam, as I mentioned before. And then if we want to open the can of worms, that's a prostate exam. I would leave that up to the GP's discretion, but it's not mandatory. And investigations, I would say that if you suspect that it might be an infection, then obviously a a microurine is good to have. If you think that there might be that irritative potential, uh, you know, urothelial malignancy, then some urine cytology. Again, here, an ultrasound renal tract is an excellent screening tool because it can also detect complications um, such as chronic urinary retention, uh, formation of stones or hydronephrosis. Uh, And I had a patient last week who um, had uh, poor urinary flow, had an ultrasound, showed some hydronephrosis and subsequently ended up having severe bladder outlet obstruction with bilateral hydronephrosis and renal impairment. So... All of those uh, tests are very valuable. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks for that. Moving over from kind of work up to management, I guess we should start with the non-pharmacological stuff as well, you know, just in terms of is there any general advice that you would be giving to patients when they first present with these sorts of symptoms? Yeah, and and often uh, it's it's all that's needed. Um, So the most common question we get is, is it cancer? And again, can of worms we can try and discuss later. But you can say to people, most of the time, these symptoms are not related directly to the cancer. 
uh, whether or not cancer uh, occurs concurrently is another issue. Um, but what we do know from the sort of epidemiological studies in the 90s is that roughly a third of men presenting with its symptoms will get better on their own with no treatment. A third will stay the same and a third will get worse, roughly. Uh, so that's one aspect. And then the other ones relate to probably pelvic health. So if you've got uh, men who are constipated, their urinary symptoms are worse. Uh, similarly, if they're dehydrated, they may have more dysuria. Uh, and then if they have lots of nocturia, then cutting the evening fluids, managing uh, peripheral edema and diuretics as well are very simple things that can make a big difference to people's quality of life. Okay, good. And so what about when these symptoms are troubling enough to motivate the patient to actually want to take a tablet for it? What are our options in terms of pharmacological management? And I guess, you know, what are the practicalities in terms of when and how you'd start those medications? Again, goes back to what you think the primary problem is. In older males, it's uh, most commonly going to be an outlet problem. And so uh, an alpha blocker is a good starting point. Most commonly, people will start them on prazosin at, say, one milligram BD. We all know that that can cause postural hypotension. But what is good about it is that it's cheap. You can up titrate it to two milligrams twice a day uh, if needed. The next option would be a selective alpha blocker, such as tamsulosin or psilidosin. And both of those are equally effective. Some people anecdotally feel that psilidosin might be a bit more effective uh, and is maybe slightly cheaper, but the availability is slightly less. Both of those uh, have less postural hypotension, but are more likely to cause retrograde ejaculation as a sexual side effect. And then make sure that uh, if there's someone coming up for cataract surgery, that uh, you either don't give it or you make sure that they're aware and that the ophthalmologist knows because of intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. They can also have other effects such as uh, a stuffy nose and, and other things. But those two that I mentioned are the main side effects. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And, you know, it's an important reminder not just to be handing over that prescription, but to be ensuring you're having a, a full discussion around those potential risks and, and ensuring the patient's able to make that informed decision around whether they treat. But I just wanted to ask you, with the floppy iris syndrome, do you have, like, do you routinely send people to an ophthalmologist or an optometrist at least for screening to, like, exclude cataracts before starting just so that you can kind of know that that's then not going to be an issue in the near future or is it okay to sort of just to start it but then make sure that they are informed to talk to their ophthalmologist in if that becomes an issue in the future with regards to cataracts? Unfortunately, I don't think urologists are that diligent um, and I think you know, that they'll ask the, the question of the patient, but probably won't go hunting for a, a cataract assessment or anything like that. I'm fairly sure that the ophthalmologists are able to, to cease it and it's able to be managed. But some ophthalmologists have told me that it, it can just make the procedure quite difficult. But at the same time, if, if the man can't pee or is in retention, well, it's a, a risk benefit thing. So Absolutely. Okay. And so then what's our next options moving on from an alpha blocker? So the alpha blocker in terms of the available trials is basically just for symptomatic progression. So it, as far as we're aware, it doesn't really reduce uh, post-void residual volumes or other complications. It does reduce, I suppose, voiding pressures or 
I suppose, bladder pressures. So then the, the voiding velocity is better. Uh, the next step would be the, the combination of jutasteride and, and tamsulosin or duodart. That's PBS funded. And, and I found that a lot of GPs are starting this now with that indication. I would say that the, in terms of the counselling for the patients, it, it's a lot more complicated. Aside from the alpha blocker side effects, the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor side effects can be quite debilitating for people. And a lot of these relate to sexual dysfunction, whether that's erectile dysfunction, loss of libido uh, and other aspects. And then there's also uh, gynecomastia and and loss of of hair is another one. We also need to remember that it can uh, directly interact with PSA levels. And so if uh, someone is on uh, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor such as eutasteride, whatever the PSA level is, as a general rule of thumb, you should double it. Uh, And so it's quite common for us to get referrals of of PSAs that have just nipped over, say, three or so. And when in actual fact, if you adjust that for Duodart, it's actually six. So uh, that's definitely worth considering. Just need to mention that there is a a concern or has been a concern probably for the past 15 years that maybe the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor causes prostate cancer. Um, I can say that that's not the case, so that the initial studies suggested that the detection of higher-grade prostate cancer was more likely in people taking Duodart, but the subsequent 15-year follow-up data and now common practice suggests that actually it probably meant that because the Duodart shrunk the prostate, it was easier for us to find the cancer rather than directly causing it. All right. But again, you know, really kind of reinforcing that need to have a full discussion with the patient because these medications aren't without their risks. Mm. So when do you want to be seeing these patients and when should we be sending off the referral? If you would ask me, I would like to see them before you start Duodart. And the reason is that because of those sexual side effects can be severe, particularly in men in their, say, 40s and 50s, Uh, In some cases, it's actually irreversible. And the discussion we would have with them is that, well, there's this option of this tablet that might help, but may have these side effects, or there's the option of this surgery that has side effects and things as well. And then it means that the patient can be fully informed of what those options are. We've also got more surgical options than we used to, which with potentially less side effect profile. So it is becoming much more complicated. I think also if you think that there's a predominant storage component but you're concerned about a bit of obstruction or if it's all just getting too hard with infections, hematuria or other things, then uh, send them along because this is what we're trained to, to deal with and see these patients very commonly. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that comfort level as well, you know, kind of changes from one GP to the next two in terms of their experience in this kind of area as well. So if you're wanting to have a conversation about, you know, surgical options as well, tell me, Matt, do all men with lower urinary tract symptoms need a TERP? Well, the uh, the old adage is men plus LUTs equals TERP. Uh, that was the old urology equation. And then if previous TERP, do another TERP. But uh, that that equation has since been proven to be false. And as I've probably made it seem, you know, this is a lot more complicated than it used to be. The TERP or TURP is still the gold standard uh, operation, but it's not suitable for everyone. So, for instance, men with very small prostates or men wanting to preserve sexual function, it's less suitable for them compared to the minimally invasive therapies um, such as Resume, Eurolift and others. But also for men with very big prostates, 
Uh, it may be not as appropriate as well due to sort of longevity or, or how I describe it to the patients, the warranty. Uh, and so it might be other options such as a, a whole lip, which is a laser prostatectomy, a green light laser prostatectomy, or even a robotic or open uh, what we call a nucleation where we scoop out the middle part of the prostate. Uh, and they all have their, their pros and cons, risks and benefits to discuss with the patients. So it's becoming more and more complex, but the good thing for the patients is that they have more and more options tailored to their priorities in life. And so, Matt, just to throw in even a little bit more controversy then, do all of these patients need a PSA as well? Where, where are we headed with that? Well, uh, talk about controversial, Christina. Um, I mean, if, if you've uh, seen TV recently, it's uh, uh, an emerging topic of interest again. And one of the most pleasing things I had during my training was the, the NHMRC PCFA guidelines where really all of the key interest parties in Australia came together and agreed on a position for PSA testing. Uh, unfortunately, those guidelines are seven years old now and, and things have changed a lot. And I think more and more, particularly probably exacerbated by COVID and, and lack of engagement with primary care and, and, and medical in, in general, we're seeing a lot of delayed diagnosis and, and men uh, full of regret and wishing they'd have things tested sooner. But also it's a good opportunity or good time to sort of educate the lay public that we are 100% different to what we were 10, 15 years ago. So we've been able to, uh, with the use of prostate MRI, right up the front at diagnosis, reduce biopsy rates by up to 50% in some series. So for instance, in our public hospital, we'd, we'd reduced our biopsy rates by 50% by using MRIs. Uh, and then also the other thing we've done is, is disconnected cancer diagnosis from cancer treatment. And so not every diagnosis needs treatment and we're using active surveillance in, in uh, more than 80% of men with low risk prostate cancer. Also, our treatments are uh, more uh, advanced and, and have less side effects than they used to. But it is controversial. There are uh, a lot of opinions based on the data as to whether there is a true benefit to detection or treatment at all. So let's just hope that the uh, specialists, epidemiologists, you know, everyone can look at the data objectively, consider the patient opinions and come up with a, a reasonable uh, conclusion. Yeah, definitely a watch this space, I think, into the future and we'll see what happens. But that is all that we have time for on the Good GP episode today. So thanks, Matt, again very much for joining me and I hope our listeners enjoyed today's episode. Thanks very much. The Good GP is produced and edited by the team at RACGPWA. If you've got any questions or would like to contact the Good GP, please feel free to email us at thegoodgp@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.